0: Well, nobody writes letters anymore. When was the last time you ran out to the mailbox to go get a letter that you wrote or to go get a letter that was written back to you? I don't really like, but I did. Anybody have a pen pal growing up? Does anybody know what a pen pal is? You write them a letter and they write you one back and you just do that until you get tired of it. But I did that in first grade. Our school matched up with another school of first graders and I forgot that kid's name. But I just remember getting his letters and thinking his life sounded really boring compared to mine. So I was thankful. But he was from Brenham, Texas. And I lived in Bryan, Texas. And our teachers arranged for us to meet. So all of us had pen pals in the other school and we were all going to meet. We met in Brenham. I had no idea what was in Brenham. Then we get to Brenham and guess what's in Brenham? Bluebell. And the guy had written me who knows how many letters and never once mentioned that. And I was like, brother, you got to lead with that. The ice cream factory is down the street from me. You have to lead with that. But he didn't. Regardless to say, though, that we all learned how to write letters through that whole process. Right. We had to introduce ourselves before we ever met. This is who I am. This is what I look like. This is what we do. I'm sure we drew a self portrait that looked like some kind of deranged zoo animal. And sent it to him, but we had to write and we had to learn how to conclude a letter, how to fill a letter. We learned what letter writing was all about, like I'm sure we all used to in school, before text messaging came around. Because now that's the main way we do written communication is through texting. And when texting came about, it was a great thing. We just used it like World War II telegrams, didn't we? SOS, period. The kids are rioting, period. Please bring pizza and reinforcements, period. Period. That was it. That was the extent of your texting. They were short, they were brief, they were right to the point. But now they're this long, inscrutable, run-on sentence full of misspelled words and sprinkled with colorful hieroglyphics called emojis. And that's what we communicate as. And when you get a text message from somebody that you don't know, what do you say? Who dis? That's the extent of it. Who dis? This Bob. That's where the English language has devolved to in written communication. But we're going to read written communication in Romans, so we need to know how a letter works. And this first paragraph is the introduction, and Paul's going to identify himself and his message with clarity and thoroughness as to who he is and what he's here to talk about. Because these people had never met him, right? So they couldn't just get a letter from a random guy named Paul and go, let's just Google him and see who he is. Let's find his ministry online. Can't do that. So he has to tell you exactly who he is and exactly what he represents. What is the content of his message? He had to lay that out. So this first paragraph that we're going to look at in verses 1 through 7 is that very thing. Paul introduces himself and then he is quickly eclipsed by his message. In this letter, so it's seven verse introduction, and this church needed to know, as we still do, that the one seeking to instruct them in the Christian faith knows Jesus. We got to know that on the front end, because biblical theology and biblical living is not just something we sprinkle Jesus over the top of. No, biblical theology and biblical living is in, is the ocean of who Jesus is. So that's what Paul has to display. Here, because this church at Rome was largely uneducated in the things of Christ, and they needed to be shown and to know that the middle, beginning, and end of Paul's message is Christ, and that's it. So he's going to lay that out in these first few verses. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What is the first thing that Paul says about himself? Paul, comma, a servant, a servant, that's the Greek word doulos, which is more literally translated slave. Literally, if you take that word in the Greek, it literally is a male human in a socioeconomic context owned by another, solely and completely devoted to the will of of another. That's what doulos means. That's how Paul initially identifies himself. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. Too often in our English, American English Bibles, that word gets softened because slavery sounds demeaning and I don't really want to be that. Or maybe it's because of our national shame of antebellum slavery. But we need not soften that word as Christian because servant can kind of carry the connotation of a dignified lowliness. Like, I'm choosing to do this, and this has, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I could be doing something way better, but I'm choosing to kind of be this with Jesus. But slave carries the true meaning of being owned by another. Now, Paul loves it, and we're going to talk about that. It's not obligatory, but he is owned by another. So that's the first thing that Paul wants to tell this church as to who he is. The primary identifier as to who he is is that he is owned by Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to be known for. He's perfectly fine with identifying himself as that. The the, the very identifier that comes after his name is not Paul M.B.A. or Paul Ph.D. or Paul M.D. It's Paul Slave. That's how he chooses to identify himself primarily with the moniker of slave of Christ. That's how he wants to be known. We know from numerous other passages that Christ does, that God does attribute real worthiness and dignity to human beings, to his sons and his daughters. We're never less than full image bearers of God. So it's not to say that we are so lowly that we have no mattering whatsoever. No, he attributes to us a sanctity. But what Paul is understanding and communicating here in this first verse is that that dignity, that worth that I have is all of grace and none of me. I didn't do any of that because I'm just a slave. I'm submitted to his will. And as a slave, he's been appointed to a unique role. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. All it is, it means messenger or delegate. All Paul is saying is that I am going in representation of another. I have not my own message. I did not create any of this material. I am just going bearing the message of my sovereign. I'm just the delivery boy. That's all I am. I didn't make the pizza. I'm just the one bringing it. I'm not the chef. I'm the waiter. That's what he's saying when he's saying as an apostle. And did you see how he got to be? that role. He was called to be an apostle. He didn't apply for it. He didn't campaign for it. He didn't leverage his weight in the theological world to become that. And he didn't choose it either. God called him to it. You know, Paul's story in Acts chapter nine, I'm going to give you the brief highlights of it. In Acts chapter nine, you need to see where he starts to see where he gets so we can understand this call. So this is how Paul starts out. His name is Saul first. And Acts chapter nine, verse one, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's where Paul starts in verse one and two. He is, is, is breathing out zealous, murderous intentions against the people of God. And then the very next two verses Paul is floored to the ground by mere light, light emanating from Jesus in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, in that moment, God floors him through Jesus Christ, and then he gets told, This is what I'm setting you apart for. God tells this guy, Ananias, who's going to go to him and restore Paul and kind of clarify things to him. And in verse 15 and 16, so a few verses down, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So now he's set apart. He's called for this unique role. And then you just go down four verses to verse 20 and it says this. And immediately he, Paul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. So he's gone from saying, I'm zealously trying to murder these people. to now I'm preaching their gospel, preaching their message. And then just three verses after that in verse 23, he says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So in the span of one, verse 1 to verse 24, he's completely flipped. Now, does that sound like the way you would draw it up? Your plan for your life? You know, what, I'm going to start out trying to murder all these people and just do that. Even out of town, I'm going to be a long-distance murderer. I'm going to go do that. But then all of a sudden, I'm probably going to flip. And that's going to be, I'm just going to kind of choose to do that. No, this was a calling He was called not only to Christ, but a call to be an apostle. He was appointed to the office of apostle against his own will. You've noticed that he didn't choose any of this and his, he was actively fighting against it. He got chosen against his own will because when any of us is bought by Jesus's blood and regenerated by the Holy spirit, we get a new will that wants to please God and this office of apostle, Paul's going to affirm elsewhere, and we'll see, no longer exists. Because the office of an apostle is one who has seen God. The New Testament doesn't call anybody an apostle except for the 11 minus Judas, right? And then they replace Judas with Matthias in early chapters of Acts, and then you get Paul. So there's 13 men referred to as apostles specifically in the New Testament, and that's it. Paul describes it like this in First Corinthians 15, the very next book in the New Testament. 15, 8 through 10, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So there's nobody walking around today as an apostle because nobody has seen the risen Lord that's walking around Today. Now, we can behave apostolically, surely. We can be sent with a message that's not our own, but we are not apostles in the sense that Paul was an apostle because he's an apostle by Jesus' own desire. And he set apart in a unique way. Verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Acts 13, 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he's set apart for the gospel. What is The gospel, the gospel is God making available the pardon of sin, the restoration to God's favor, the regeneration of your soul being made into a new creature, the resurrection of our bodies and spending eternity with him in everlasting, ever increasing bliss. And all of that's obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So he set apart for that singular mission, that one thing. The entirety of Paul's life was engulfed in the gospel. If you boiled down his daily concern, it would just be the gospel. That's it. He wasn't set apart for church planting initiatives, though he did plant many churches. He wasn't set apart for a preaching tour around the Mediterranean world, though he did preach probably countless sermons. He wasn't set apart to be the prototype for all missionaries, though he certainly is. And He wasn't set apart for merely the construction of Christian theology, though he contributed greatly to that in the Bible. He was set apart for the gospel. That's what he set apart for, not the byproducts of the gospel, the gospel. See, we in the Western church, we get consumed with the, the byproducts of the gospel. We get consumed with the slag and not the iron. So when you refine iron and you get to steel through that, when you refine that metal, it produces an offshoot, a byproduct. It's called slag. You use it for road bases and other things that you need rock chunks for. You can grind it down to lots of building materials. But nobody goes into that melting of metal business to get slag. You go into it to get steel and iron. But you produce slag, and that ends up being pretty useful. So you can sell that and profit off that as well. But what Paul is saying is I am not set apart for the slag. I'm set apart for the gospel. Now, if we are truly set apart and focused on as a church, the gospel, then we will be missions-minded. We will support church-planting initiatives. We will care about rightly preaching the word of God. That will happen naturally if you're set apart for and focused solely upon The gospel. Because the gospel doesn't need propping up. Why? Well, verse 1 tells us. Set apart for the gospel of who? The gospel of God. If it's God's gospel, then it doesn't need propping up by any of the things that we can manifest on our own. He pulls it all up. Paul was not sent out as a herald for the good news of man. He was not saying, hey, I know we have a Bible. We kind of condensed it down, and these are the cliff notes. We're set apart for that. No, we set apart for the gospel of God. And God's gospel doesn't need propping up God authored and orchestrated the gospel before the foundations of the world. So what Paul's saying in this letter is that every word, line, sentence, paragraph, concept, and idea that comes after is from the gospel of God. That it is God's gospel. They are all good news and they are all good. God's, which he promised, verse 2, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We've got to run that which, which down. When you when you, anytime we see a pronoun, have got to run it down. Which refers to what? The gospel, which he promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures and the prophets. So, what is that Holy Scriptures and prophets in AD 57? That meant the Old Testament, that meant Genesis to Malachi. That's what the prophets and the Holy Scriptures were. Because the New Testament was currently being written. Paul was currently writing it, as was Luke, as was Peter, as was Mark, as was John, as was Jude, as was James. They were still writing the New Testament. So this is referring to the Old Testament. So then we have to ask ourselves, is Paul saying that the gospel, as you and I understand it, as New Testament Christians in 2018, is available and present in the Old Testament? Is that what he's saying? I thought the gospel comes when Jesus is born. Is he saying that the people of God had the gospel before there was ever an incarnated Savior named Jesus? Is that what he's saying? That's precisely what he's saying. Well, if that's the truth, then where is the first mentioning of the gospel in the Old Testament? Where is it? Well, it's really just the first few paragraphs of your entire Bible in Genesis. We know how the book of Genesis starts, right? In the beginning, God spoke, God created And then what? Barely a chapter and a half later, man ruins it completely with sin. It's done. And then you get cursing. And then the serpent who deceives Eve is cursed. And we see the gospel there. Let me show you in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what the church is called for 1,000, 2,000 years, the Proto-Evangelium. All that means is the first gospel. Now, how is the gospel there? How is that the gospel? Let's break apart some of these things. If you have a Bible that's not uh, ESV, if you have NASB or New King James or King James, it probably says seed instead of offspring. So I will put enmity between you, Satan, your seed and the woman's seed. Now, I didn't crush it in biology in high school, And I intentionally took none of it in college, but I at least know that biologically in the reproductive process, women have no seed. So then how is God saying that between your seed, male serpent and female woman, your seed, there's gonna be enmity there? Well, that's a prophecy of the virgin birth that Christ is going to proceed naturally only from a woman. And what is that seed going to do? He's going to bruise your head. He's going to strike your head and you're just going to bruise his heel. Now, if you're out there with a snake and you've got nothing but boots on, you've got no gun, no knife, no nothing to kill the snake with in Texas, you have boots on, what are you going to do? You're going to smash it with your heel, aren't you? Now, are you are going to do it kind of gently so you don't hurt your foot? No, it's a snake. We live in Texas. You just assume it's going to kill you. So you stomp it out. And if you walk away with a limp, that's okay because that thing is now dead. And that's Jesus, right? He's bruised temporarily at the cross, rise again. But in that moment, he struck a death blow to Satan and then thus death and sin along with him. So the gospel appears to us in Genesis 3. The gospel is rifled throughout the Old Testament. It's everywhere. Theologians, they kind of agree that there's about 330 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, most of which were filled during the time of his own incarnation. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. We don't have the time to go look through them all down, but suffice it to say that there is no book of the Bible of the Old Testament that you could not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from. He's distinctly the focus of the entirety of Scripture. So you can preach the gospel from any of these books Hebrews, the book of Hebrews calls these shadows and copies of Christ in the Old Testament. And if you have a copy, that means you have an original. And if you have a shadow, that means you have some, something of substance casting that shadow. And that's Christ. He is the substance and he is the original. We see the shadows and copies in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to ask, too, here, was this just a happy accident that Paul stumbled across this? The Holy Spirit just kind of led him to write that, and that just kind of ended up working out really well, just kind of Holy Spirit pulling strings behind the scenes? Well, because he does that. He did that in Psalm 22, right? David wrote that, didn't know that that was going to be the very words of his own descendant on the cross when he's paying for our sins. But I don't believe that's what the Holy Spirit did here. I think Paul knew it clearly because he says in Romans 16, 20, At the end of the book, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul had an understanding of Genesis 3.15. And he had an understanding that we will see in chapter 6 of Romans that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, what's true of him is true of us. And so if he's going to crush the foot and I'm in Christ, I'm going to also be a part of that final death blow annihilating Satan for all of eternity. So Paul understood that to be the case and here he begins for us starting in Romans to cite his source material he's pulling from the old testament his source material is the old testament saint augustine said in the 4th century the new testament is in the old concealed the old is by the new revealed we can't understand the old testament without the new we can't understand the new without the old we need them both we need a full bible all 66 books And this Bible is concerning his son, verse 3, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel present in the Old Testament, Paul says here, is concerning Jesus, concerns the Son of God. Therefore, this book concerns the Son of God because Jesus is the gospel. The gospel focuses its centrality upon a person, and that person is Jesus Christ that's who is the gospel. Martin Luther said the content or the object of the gospel or as some have put it, the subject is Jesus Christ, the son of God. Without a right understanding of Jesus, you do not have a right understanding of the gospel. Let me illustrate, follow this line of reasoning that could, that could possibly happen if you were sharing the gospel. You go up to somebody and you say, "Jesus died on the cross for you, and if you believe in him, you will be saved." What did that person ask? Well, when did that happen? AD 33 I think well back then did anybody else die on crosses well yeah but this this one was different why was this death special because he died for your sins how can a person die for my sins well he wasn't a normal person well if he wasn't a normal person then how could he die uh what what does it matter that he died well he didn't stay dead how could that be? All human beings die and stay dead. But if he wasn't a normal human being, then how could he die? Uh, why should I believe in him? We have to know our Savior if we're going to be ambassadors for our Savior. So the rest of the verse is going to answer that line of reasoning. Look at this. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. This is how the Son of God was able to die. He was truly human. God cannot die, but a God-man can die in his flesh. So he's got to be of flesh, and he's got to be descended from David. Jesus' ancestry has to come back to David. Otherwise, he's not the promised Messiah that we're all waiting for. He has to be from David, and because God promised it to David that a Savior would come who would reign forever as king, from your lineage, from your body. Second Samuel seven thirteen, fourteen, 14, and 16 says, when your days are fulfilled, he's talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, meaning you died, I will raise up your offspring, remember that word? After you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. No human being lives forever unless he is a God-man, truly God and truly man. And what kind of kingdom is this descendant of David going to have? Do we even know that this could possibly be talking about some kind of savior whose kingdom will last into eternity? Well, we do because the gospel is in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 11, it says this in verse 1 through 2, there shall come forth a shoot From the stump of Jesse. Who's David's dad? Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And what will that kingdom be like? You skip down to verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The cow and the bear shall graze. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Doesn't that sound like our heaven? No more violence, no more enmity. There is peace that reigns forever. God's spirit reigns supreme in all of our hearts. And there is one king sitting on the throne. And that comes from the line of David. David. See, the New Testament lists out two genealogies of David, one in Matthew and one in Luke. The one in Matthew goes through Joseph and gives his legal sonship of David. The one in Luke goes through Mary to his natural connection to David. Matthew goes through Solomon to get to Jesus. And Luke goes through Nathan, David's son Nathan, to get to Jesus. But he is fully Of that lineage, because if the one we know as Jesus is not descended from David, then he is not the promised Savior and therefore cannot save us from our sins. But Paul says he is truly human and truly of David. But it doesn't end there. In verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because if Jesus is only truly human, then our gospel has a massive problem, Paul is saying to these Romans. Even if that human is descended from David, if he's only truly human, then we have a massive problem. Because David died and nobody ever saw him again. And David's death didn't accomplish anything for me because he's just a regular human. So we have got to have something else. Paul has to keep writing past verse 3 to get to verse 4. Because Jesus is not just the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Because if he is not God, then his death does nothing for us. But if he is God, if he is the son of God, then therefore truly God, then he can fully withstand the full and unmitigated wrath of God. He can die for other people in the place of them. And he can perfectly keep the law of God down to the commas. And thus apply that to you and I. And how is that declared to be the case? Do you see that in verse four? And was declared by what? By his resurrection from the dead. That's how he's declared to be the son of God, by the resurrection, because when men die, they stay dead. And when men are resuscitated like Lazarus and John 11, they die again. But if you're the son of God, then you die and then you never die again. That, that stands, the resurrection stands as evidence of Jesus' sonship. He is proven to be very God of very God by the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Martin Luther called this the gospel in a nutshell. The story about Christ, God's and David's son who died and was raised and is established as Lord is the gospel in a nutshell. And if we don't have the resurrection that declares Jesus to be God, Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most pitiful people on the planet. If we as Christians believe in an unresurrected savior, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet, he says, because we're dead in our sins just like everybody else. But we're deceived beyond being deceived. But Jesus has raised from the dead. And because of that undeniable fact, we can receive grace. Look at verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. It is through this Jesus, the one who is truly God and truly man, that we can receive grace. You can get what you deserve, and you don't need Jesus for that. But if you want grace, if you're very distinctly afraid of what you do deserve, and you should be, then you're going to have to go through Jesus because he is the conduit of grace. You don't get to be loved by God unless through grace Jesus Christ makes you lovable. That's how it has to happen. That's how God's set it up because grace is unmerited, unearned favor. And that has to come through something. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the commentator, he said that love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that goes, that stoops, that goes down, that is grace. And that's what Jesus does for us. And Paul knew he was saved by grace. He was made an apostle by grace. You know, he carries all of that by grace. He of all people is crystal clear. He did nothing to bring this about. He was in direct and, and spelled out contradiction to all that he now proclaims. So he knows his works were worthless and they were not good. He had none. He was living in comprehensive rebellion to God. And in fact, all of us were living in, con- in comprehensive rebellion. To God. Look at verse 5 as it continues. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Obedience of faith. That was what the gospel is to bring about. Because we were all living in comprehensive rebellion to God. That's why Paul said it's grace, because you don't have any inclination toward it, because naturally people are disobedient. And if anyone thinks that they should be given heaven based upon their own natural right, then you have a weak or non-existent understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. You have to understand those in order to understand grace because you were an insurgent. You were a hostile. You were a rebel before God. Brothers and sisters, the gospel's primary focus, the primary objective of the gospel is not to make you whole. The primary objective of the gospel is not to give your life some higher meaning, nor is it to help you cope with your problems or help you deal with your depressions and your sadness. No, the primary objective of the gospel is to subdue your rebellion. That's the primary objective of the gospel. When Jesus collided with Paul on the Damascus way, he didn't say, Saul, did you know that you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and that's why you're so grumpy? And if you'll just believe in me, then you'll get happier. No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was his problem in his heart. He had a treason in his heart against the son of God. And the same is true for all people. Now, does the gospel make you whole? Does it give you clarity? Does it bring peace? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does those things. But your lack of wholeness, your lack of clarity, your lack of meaning or peace, that's not what's killing you. What's killing you is your rebellious heart of sin. So we need that problem fixed. You don't need therapy. You need a new you. You need a new creature. That's what Paul's saying that the gospel is. We need about obedience of heart. What you need is for your rogue heart to be overhauled and subdued By the love of God, that's what you need. And that possibility exists for how many people? What does it say in verse five? For the sake of his name, among all the nations. That that possibility exists for every single people group and God will not bring this all into an end until there is representative of every single people group. However, he defines that in heaven. Including you, verse six, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome. You also, Romans, were former insurgents, but you were brought to Jesus Christ, called to those who were in Rome. You see that we there? He includes them in there. So just as you understanding this introduction, Paul's identifying them as Christians, because he says we, and we know Paul to be a Christian. And who are they? They're the church at Rome, because it says in Rome. So you didn't need that title on top of your Bible. All you gotta do is read the text that we would know who we're talking to, Christians in Rome. Verse seven, who are what? Who are loved by God and called to be saints. We know these are Christians because they're loved by God and they're called to be saints because we know how God feels towards the wicked. In Psalm 11, verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But Psalm 32 10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. These Romans have repented of their sin. They have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, and therefore they are surrounded by the love of God. But before we move past this verse, we need to see a key word that you could possibly miss that appears in verse 7 and verse 6 and in verse 1. It's the word called. It's the Greek word kletos, called. In verse 1, Paul says he's called to be an apostle. In verse 6, he says that you are called to belong to Jesus. In verse 7, those who are called to be saints. We need to see that. We need to note that. In verse 1, nobody had a problem with Paul being called to be an apostle because we are often very guilty of elevating these men used of God to write the scriptures into some supernatural state where they're almost like a quasi-Jesus. So we're cool with that being happening for him. But did you see that about just normal people? In Rome, you were called to be beloved by God. You were called as saints. It's the same word, three times, same word, exact same word. So we can't say that Paul's conversion experience was fundamentally different than the average Christians. Now it was surely aesthetically different unless there's anybody out there walking around saying, yeah, Jesus totally floored me in the middle of the day and blinded me and talked to me about all this stuff. Then please see me afterwards. I'd love to hear the story. But all of us were fundamentally saved the same way. You were on a road contrary to everything true of God. You were actively opposing God, and we'll be called that in Romans 5 very clearly, all of us. But then you got radically converted. Somebody, somehow, the word of God through a person interjected the word of God into your life, and then you were radically converted, 180 around, exactly like Paul You didn't reach up to Jesus after you evaluated his viability as a savior. Yeah, I think you're best. After I kind of look at Buddha, look at Allah, okay, Jesus is the best. I'm going to reach up. You didn't do that. You were called. And all Christians are saved by the same means, the grace of God subduing your rebellious heart. That's how we were all saved. Not you reasoning your way to him through your own wisdom and capacity. That's a theme that's gonna be woven throughout Romans and Paul plants it deeply here in the first paragraph, so we need to note that. But we conclude with verse seven. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes his introductory paragraph with this phrase, praying grace and peace for them. And only a Christian can experience the grace and peace of God because only a true believer has submitted to Christ as Lord, that last phrase there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus is at peace with God, no longer at intimacy, in enmity, and that can only be through grace, and thus we have peace with God, our adoptive father. So now in this opening paragraph, in one of the most theologically dense and compacted books of the Bible, we need to note a few things. But one thing is most blindingly obvious, and that's where we're going to end. most blindingly obvious thing is that Paul got himself out of the way real quick. And what became the centralized focus of that introductory paragraph? Jesus Christ. He's in every single verse. In verse one, he's our master. In verse two, he's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. In verse three, he's the son of David. In verse four, he's the son of God. In verse five, he is the conduit of grace for you and I. In verse six, he is the one to whom we belong. And in verse seven, he is is Lord, Lord of all. So how can you apply this introductory paragraph? Is it just throw away? I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change anything. What I'd like to challenge you to do is which of those seven things do you know the least about our Lord Jesus Christ? Because every Christian in here would say, at least by risk of looking foolish, what's the most important relationship in your life? Oh, the relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know seven undeniable truths about him? I mean, what if I asked you about that, your spouse or your kids? You could rattle off seven and more about the most important things about them, key things that I need to know in order to relate to them better about your spouse, and about your kids. So so do that with Jesus. Take that time. Look at the ones you know the least about. Son of David, what does that mean? I'm going to go dive into those genealogies. What does it mean to be the son of God, that he is fully God? How does that happen? Or what does it mean for him to be master, that I'm a slave to him? that, That sounds confusing and demeaning. Pour yourself into the study of that because Paul just opens that can with that. That's how we start the whole thing is these profound truths about Jesus. So give yourself to that so it'll pay dividends as we continue to study the book of Romans. We live in a day where precise theology uh, doesn't matter. But when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, precise theology is vital for your eternity because if you have the wrong Jesus you will not be redeemed by the true Jesus. And it's also important biblical thinking and biblical living for the Christian life. Because if the Christian life just boils down to and being conformed and being changed more into Jesus, if I don't know who Jesus is, if the image that I'm trying to conform myself to is cloudy, then I will not end up conformed to him. So it's vitally important for us in the Christian life To know these truths, it's not just head knowledge. It informs our very walk, our very day-to-day. So spend some time studying those words of Christ. And we end with Paul's words to the Romans. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we come before you as, as willing and joyful slaves. We could not break the bonds to sin and death, but you sent one, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And that we, and in the last of days, as we are joined with Christ, as his body will participate in the final death blow to all evil. We're so unworthy of that. But we joyfully call ourselves, as Paul does, your slaves. Because we were slaves to ourselves and to sin and to death Slavery to you is glorious life, fulfillment, joy, all those things that we would maybe try to pander on the front end of the gospel. But you gave us that as a byproduct, that you quelled and subdued our rebellious hearts. What a gracious gift. We could never have manufactured that on our own, but we stand in grace. Father, thank you for this text. Be with us as we study Romans. Let us be changed by it and let us shine brighter in the darkness having studied this great book. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.